This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Studying Media Critically, which is a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Gummo Clare, and today I'm joined by Ellis Jones, who's a lecturer in music and management at the University of Leeds. We're going to be talking about his book, DIY Music and the Politics of Social Media, which was published in 2021. Welcome to the show, Ellis. Hi, Gummo. Thanks very much for having me. So could we start with a bit of a biographical uh, intro? Could you tell us a little bit about your path into academia and what drew you to writing this book? Sure. Um... Well, I suppose I am slightly unusual, perhaps, in that I never really thought I would go to university at all. And I'm kind of the first, you know, in my family to go, go to university and, you know, left left school really only wanting to be a musician um, and did a, a BTEC in music technology and, you know, just, just sort of felt like I needed practical things that would help me, you know, in my journey towards stardom. Um, and then a couple of years down the line sort of realized that my, my prospects weren't that exciting and I was, you know, in pretty menial work. And so I, I did try and get into university and, and I suppose from there realized that there was this world of kind of studying music in a way that I didn't quite realize existed in terms of the kind of sociological study of music. You know, I, I can't, I can't read music. I'm not particularly good at kind of analyzing what's going on. In, in sonically in music um so that was really kind of a, a revelation uh, and and from there kind of you know it was all all i wanted to do really um so i did a master's in music uh music culture and politics at cardiff university which was one of the few kind of music masters you could do without having to read music um and then from there kind of went on to study my phd in school of media and communications at leeds um again you know a, a kind of a rare place where there is this kind of expertise in popular music that is outside of kind of traditional musicology, I suppose. Yeah, and then I've been lucky enough to kind of bounce around a few different academic jobs since then in Oslo, in Canada for a little while, and then um, started this post a year ago in a school of music, in quite a traditional school of music, where I, you know, did not think I would ever really be employable, but um, seems seems to be working out for, for now. 
And so in this book, you, you focus on a specific music scene in Leeds, uh, I think in the kind of early to mid 2010s. Um, so could you tell me some of the kind of notable characteristics of this scene that bind it together and make it distinctive, maybe in terms of genre or place, ethics and class and gender? Yeah, sure. I mean, I studied one scene, but I think I was always interested in the idea that it was a national scene and that there would be comparable things going on. Um, you know, for example, where I'm from in Bristol, um, you know, in London, in you know, in, in sort of major cities in the UK, you will find something close to what's going on in Leeds, I think. I was looking at what in the in the book I call it kind of indie punk to indicate that there is that it's kind of halfway between those genres, I suppose, that it's guitar music drawing on a kind of history of, I don't know, 40, 40 or 50 years of kind of what you might call kind of alternative rock, although that's kind of a maybe a cringy term for it. And it was, yeah, building on kind of traditions of DIY music stemming broadly from punk that emphasized kind of aesthetic difference from popular music, but also kind of difference in the economic arrangement. Um, so this idea of DIY being something that you do, um, I guess, primarily for, for free and for the, for the love of doing it rather than um, in search of kind of fame and renown um, and financial reward. Um, an idea that maybe it's supposed to be a kind of more inclusive music than, than popular music uh, in terms of, I suppose the, the, the historical claim of DIY is that it, you know, consumption of popular music is kind of politically inadequate in some way and that we should all be much closer to the production of music and that, you know, every, everyone is a, is a musician in waiting regardless of kind of formal training. Um, so the idea, I suppose, is that music in that scene wouldn't be judged by kind of standard aesthetic criteria and it would be a lot more about kind of participation and a sort of um yeah judging it on, on those kind of political terms um yeah so so not specific to leeds but but i guess the scene in leeds has its own particular history coming from um the kind of the history of post-punk in particular in leeds in the kind of late 70s and early 80s um and also kind of maybe particularly the sort of the, the kinds of venues that exist in that city and all those kind of, you know, structural factors that make each scene slightly different from each other. So how did you go about kind of conducting this research for the project? Um, primarily interviews, interviews with people that in the book I call uh, practitioners rather than musicians to highlight that if you're involved in this kind of scene, you are often doing much more than just playing music, you know, a lot of musicians are also promoters, you know, concert promoters, but may, may also have some kind of small, you know, record label type activity that they're involved in. Lots of people might have some kind of, I don't know, maybe graphic design expertise that they kind of bring to bear in making posters or, you know, some people might run studios or practice spaces and things like that. I don't think there was anyone that I interviewed who just played just played music, you know, that there was an expectation that you would be involved in, in other ways as well. Um, so yeah, interviewing uh, around 25 people who were involved in the scene at that time. Um, yeah, to, to, to ask them, you know, the, the book is really about kind of DIY's new relationship with social media. So, so my, my questions were focused on that and kind of trying to get to the heart of their kind of individual relationships with social media and how they feel about maybe new 
requirements to to post and to share music online. Um, and for you know for some of the older participants, whether they felt like anything had changed, and obviously for some of the younger participants and you know who, for whom this was all all they knew, um, trying to get into the kind of I suppose the psychology of of, of being a musician online uh, and how it feels to um, to share and interact um, on the on on platforms, particularly Facebook, which was probably the most important when I was doing my research. Um, but also, you know, Twitter and Instagram and, and to some extent streaming platforms like Spotify as well. Um, I guess the other thing is that as, as well as those interviews, I was drawing on my own experience as a, as a DIY musician, um, which I guess as with, you know, this was a PhD project initially. And as with a lot of PhDs, there's a kind of, I don't know, <laughs> I guess um, one of my friends is always saying that you know, people do PhDs instead of therapy and they're just trying to work work through some kind of personal issue and it. There's definitely an element of that um, in my research as well. Um, so yeah, personal experience is definitely fed into it as well as the kind of the interviews and some, some observations as well. Mm-hmm. I guess it's quite interesting is that, you know, for a book that's quite um, oriented towards social media, it, it's, it's very very interview based and then it was like a conscious decision not to do too much kind of social media analysis of, of available uh, content online um yeah i suppose so i mean it, there, there is some use of, of that material um i think yeah i was always more interested in how people felt about it perhaps more so than what they actually did um so interviews felt like the way to to get to that kind of depth of um, you know, kind of analyzing the kind of anxieties and insecurities that people feel about these things. And then hopefully through, you know, the addition of social theory, being able to kind of um, place those things that feel like individual insecurities into a, a kind of broader structure and, and thinking about how, you know, that interacts with kind of broader logics of what social media want from us. Um, yeah. So I, I felt like, you know, I, I suppose just thinking maybe slightly selfishly as a researcher, I felt like I already knew what what the posts looked like, um, you know, in terms of, and there's, in a way, there's nothing that remarkable about the way that DIY musicians use social media. They are kind of promotional. Maybe there's a kind of, there's a lot of kind of um, distancing or kind of, you know, attempts to introduce irony, you know, posts like, oh, I guess I have to promote this gig. So here's a post promoting the gig. Uh, and I suppose there is some, there's a, maybe there's some interesting kind of analysis to be done there, but I was more interested in the motivations that would lead people to to post in that way and to kind of have this slightly ambivalent relationship to social media. Yeah, so I mean, let's move on to that kind of um, that ambivalence, I guess. Uh, in the opening chapter, you make this really interesting distinction between the older currents of DIY that you've already chatted about a bit, you know, that's quite storied with relationship to specific genres of music, um, and then a newer form that's much more pervasive within the contemporary cultural industries, largely thanks to the internet, and you call this kind of DIY by default. Could you maybe outline some of the key features of this new kind of default DIY, how it might overlap, but then also diverge from the older politicized DIY form of music making. Yeah, sure. I mean, as much as it's a social media thing, I think it's also related to changes in, in the music industries. Um, so obviously as, as the internet kind of contributed to a decline in record sales, 
and record labels kind of reduced their their rosters and independent labels you know maybe ceased functioning altogether um i guess there was this kind of it brought about a kind of new expectation that if artists were going to be signed they would have had to have evidenced some kind of ability to self-manage or to build an audience before getting signed so ra rather than record labels taking a chance on you know a, you know some kind of idea of talent some kind of glimmer of you know x factor or whatever it might be um this idea that you actually have to prove yourself as a as a business person as well as a musician um so i think that that kind of fed into lots of kind of i guess artist management strategies um that were centered around the idea that you would give things away for free um that you would build a community around your work you know this idea of like the thousand true fans and and, and things like that essentially kind of you know artist management strategies um and that those kind of overlap with things that were already being done in this kind of older more more political kind of diy where it was about accessibility and kind of making music accessible making it as cheap as possible uh, making shows as cheap as possible um it was about building a community not for any you know further ends but you know for, for its for its own sake i suppose um yeah and I, I suppose you know the way that social media comes into that is that it is this new um this new distribution logic for for culture i suppose where it's available for free and um the revenue is generated in ways that are slightly harder to put your finger on and it's ultimately mostly advertising but it, it kind of feels like a, you know if you go on on youtube it kind of feels like a realm of culture being distributed and and consumed for free um so i suppose it's that one of the overlaps is that kind of slightly utopian feel of like of social media at, at least in the kind of 2000s and maybe into the the early 2010s this idea that it was actually you know realizing some of the things that diy had kind of always wanted to achieve um but at the same time it was you know when i started my project it was already clear that there were some, some substantial differences but it was just very hard to articulate those differences you know if you compare diy to the music industries historically in the sort of 70s and 80s and 90s it was diy was always able to make quite a strong case for why it was different um you know in terms of um the way that music is produced the kind of interference of record executives the you know extortionate concert prices um you know kind of the role of um i don't know pr and publicity and kind of and the kind of um I guess media complex the way in which kind of television and film and, and record labels all intersected and diy was able to sort of say quite clearly that it was that it was different from that i suppose one of the things that interested me was that it, it wasn't so easy for diy music to say you know to, to position itself as a political alternative to social media um and in fact you know it was there were these overlaps that kind of confused a lot of the kind of i don't know ethical um, bearings of, of DIY. One thing that's actually really interesting at the start of the book is that you kind of you lay out how the your, the initial impetus behind the project was was to kind of make clear these distinctions, but and also provide a, a degree of critique of social media, and that as time progressed, that became 
much more widespread. And in fact, the book contains at least part, parts of a defense of social media now. Is, is that fair? And the, and the kinds of communities it, or the kinds of tools it can offer for bringing together um, communities. What kind of motivated your your making that move, I suppose? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I'd thought about it in exactly those terms. Um, the, the thing that felt a lot more up in the air was the defense of DIY, uh, actually, because it's this thing which, you know, is is very insular and can be very cliquey. And, and at the time I was doing my research, there were, well, I guess maybe maybe as with with any music scene, there were kind of a lot of problems in terms of, um, I suppose, abuses of power, broadly speaking, um, at the individual level and kind of at broader levels as well. So that that always felt like something was up in the that was up in the air. You know, constant kind of crises of is this thing worth defending? Um, but yeah, social media as well. I suppose. Um, I don't know. I, I suppose it was always. I, I don't know whether I was ever interested in defending social media, but I was maybe interested in making sure that critiques of it were kind of were accurate and were sufficiently kind of limited and, and defined that it wasn't just a case of, you know, social media, I suppose, uh, writing in the context of kind of misinformation and the kind of US elections and, and Brexit and things like that, it, it felt like at times people were willing to lay the blame for any kind of social problem at the door of, of social media, whereas it always seemed like they you know, there were there were other factors and kind of more long-standing factors uh, in in those kind of things. So I, I'm not sure I was ever interested in defending social media, but I did always want to try and make clear kind of what the terms of critique were. Um, and I suppose that's particularly true in thinking about like independent platforms like Bandcamp, um, which was really really important to the the DIY scene that I was studying and, and was a kind of key source of difference was this idea that actually there's this platform which exists that does seem to have some kind of indie ethic to it however you know however deep that goes um and which does allow people you know it kind of kind of very straightforward way it does allow some pretty amazing things which is kind of you know worldwide distribution of music and you know to be sold rather than you know just trying to build up enough streams um and so I was always kind of trying to stay at least aware of, you know, at the, at the kind of technical level, if you like, the quite amazing things that it offers DIY musicians. Um, yeah. No, 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 absolutely. I, I think, yeah, defense of social media is maybe not the right way of framing it, but yeah, with that, it doesn't lapse ever into the kind of ambient technophobia that seems to be the way that people talk about social media in general um i think which is which is very refreshing i think um so then in chapter two you give a bit of historical background to doi music scenes in general and how that kind of inflects your case study and, and your argument so could you talk maybe a little bit about the three past scenes that you identify which is uk post-punk us post-hardcore and riot girl kind of what were they and why are they significant to the scene you studied and to the, the kind of argument you're making. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there are three, you know, realistically, they, they all sort of overlap. But I guess what I wanted to show in that chapter is that, you know, DIY music, I guess, hasn't had a constant set of 
ethical principles for the last 40 years. And it also hasn't had a constant set of, of aesthetic principles either. So I wanted to kind of show that DIY politics always kind of are shaped by yeah, broader political currents and, you know, broader ideas of maybe what, what the left is, for example, at that particular time. Um, so yeah, UK post-punk, um, I suppose, well, I should say, I suppose I, I chose the three scenes partly because I feel like they all still have an influence in some way on the music that's being made. Um, certainly that, the, you know, the bands I was looking at in Deeds um, and that they all kind of contribute different strains to what you might see as a kind of DIY politics today. So I think UK post-punk kind of late seventies, early eighties, lots of that is a resistance to standardization. It's kind of broadly an Adornian critique, I think of popular music. So you get bands like Wire who have, you know, manifestos about, I don't know, no chorusing out, you know, this idea that pop songs, the very structure of pop songs is this kind of thing that should be politically resisted. Um, you know, lots of critiques of, yeah, the record industry is this kind of almost psychological operation, which is again, the Adornian thing of, you know, pop music makes people, makes people dumb. It makes them, you know, it, it you know, it weakens their resistance. It kind of, you know, it makes them, you know, hypnotized almost. Um, and so trying to, a lot of kind of expressionist aesthetic, trying to kind of break through structures, um, I suppose. And then in terms of the economic side, um, that's really the era in which kind of a network of independent labels and independent record shops kind of, um, are kind of brought into being, um, so important for a lot of reasons. Uh, yeah, kind of a lot of the discourse around kind of DIY really begins there as a response to kind of punk selling out, uh, I suppose, you know, uh, and the kind of role of major labels in kind of, um, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid kind of uh, being too skeptical or, or, or too invested in any of these discourses, but I think that's the important aspect of it is that kind of, um, skepticism of, of popular music. Um, Post-hardcore, I think, is an interesting one because you know, it was a very kind of US movement and it has these links to kind of, I guess what I see is quite an American self-sufficiency, which introduces this kind of political ambiguity where, you know, one definition of DIY is very community-based, but another is really about something that could almost be seen as entrepreneurship you know this idea that you should really be able to do everything yourself you know you should really be able to you know fix your equipment yourself which is kind of the, the steve albini thing it's like you know don't let this knowledge just belong to i don't know your you know chain guitar shop or whatever or your you know big corporations who are kind of i don't know it, it kind of interacts with technology in some interesting ways um so yeah, that, that's an interesting aspect of it for me, but then also, I guess some specific DIY innovations, if you like, like the all ages show is a, is a concept that really comes from that time. Um, you know, this idea that there are people who, who want to get into concerts, but if it's a venue in, in the US that's selling alcohol, you might need to be 21 to get in there. And, you know, that being a kind of exclusion of youth, you know, with, with a clear commercial motive, which is that the bar wants to sell alcohol. So, the idea of all ages shows, which, 
yeah, in the UK it's a slightly different phenomenon because we we have different licensing laws. Um, but but things like that, um, and this idea of starting to shape the kind of the kind of architecture of of the gig, if you like, and saying actually, no, these people should be allowed to be here. Um, and then the third scene that I was looking at really does follow on from that, which is kind of Riot Girl, which was, I mean, in some senses, a, a global scene or a global movement, but it definitely stems from that kind of hardcore punk scene in the US. Um, and I think one of the most important aspects of, of Riot Girl is that it was really highlighting that, you know, previous punk and post-punk had kind of made claims that were seemed to be implicitly universal, but actually Riot Girl highlighted that maybe punk had been a movement for mostly white men and mostly of kind of specific, I guess, well, lower middle class, maybe specifically. So I think Riot Girl did a lot in introducing, you know, really important represent representational politics to punk and saying, well, actually it isn't as simple as saying that there are, you know, there's a mainstream and there's an alternative. There are actually kind of politics within the alternative that need to be addressed um, before it can make any kind of claim to emancipation for everyone, right? There's actually, you know, stuff that needs dealing with. And again, kind of, it's kind of reshaping the space in terms of, you know, literally, you know, bringing women and girls to the front of concerts and saying, actually, this is, it's more important that these people are here than, than the, you know, the, the blokes who are at every gig or whatever. Um, yeah, so those three all seem to have, you know, related but slightly slightly distinct politics um, and kind of different, to different extents, were all kind of influential in, in the scene that I was looking at. Um, yeah, I think that the scene that I would have, the only other scene that seemed maybe important that also maybe had an influence would be the kind of more twee indie pop, largely a kind of UK scene, I think, in the kind of late 80s and early 90s, which was, um, yeah, had a kind of feminist politics to it, but was also about kind of, I don't know, making quite sort of gentle music and kind of um, resisting kind of rock and kind of macho tendencies and also had a kind of anti-modern, quite sort of pastoral aesthetic. Um, but yeah, so I, th I think I was interested in making sure that I, yeah, identified that it, DIY wasn't this kind of universal thing and also trying to, get a sense of how, you know, ethics, aesthetics, um, economic organization, and also responses to technology as well, kind of were always, you know, always in flux. And also kind of, there were particular kind of pack packages of aesthetics and, and aesthetics that kind of, um, you know, ended up kind of being part of the same political project. And so thinking about this idea of ethics, which obviously do fluctuate, as you say, like you choose cultural resistance as uh, maybe the best way for framing or assessing DIY music. And you, you make the point that resistance has perhaps been a bit unfashionable in some circles of media theory. So why did you go for resistance in uh, cultural resistance in this context? Yeah, um, still something I feel a little bit unsure about. I, th I think... The impetus really was that I wanted to, you know, do justice to DIY as this thing that ultimately I think does have political potential. Um, so for me, that was a reason to sort of steer away from any framings that would be too 
sort of relativistic you know that would be too much like well isn't isn't all music i don't know that would would kind of would kind of allow too many equivalents to be made between diy and popular music and all sorts of other music making so i wanted to hold on to the idea that you know there is political potential so how, how do we assess this and i suppose i, I also the, on the other side i wanted to avoid being too deferential to, to, to DIY music as it, as it was and to, you know, didn't want to take their political goals for granted as being, you know, sort of normatively correct. So I know I was thinking about things like, um, I know in, in DIY, for example, it's, it's very common for promoters who, who aren't getting paid to give all of the money on the door to, to bands, right? So promoters don't get paid. Um, and that's just taken for granted as a kind of political act, right? Because I guess it's a resistance to the idea that in the music industry, it's kind of full of these leeches who take a cut without doing anything and without being, you know, the real artists who actually deserve the money. But I don't know something like that. It does mean that every time the promoter puts on a gig, they're starting from scratch. They're really hoping that they don't lose money because otherwise, you know, they're going to have to be going to the, the cash point or whatever and, and losing money to be able to pay, pay the bands. And something like that, I don't know, it just seemed, that's not a social media example, I suppose, but, but things like that, which are just taken for granted, seemed to be maybe in need of some kind of broader normative framework where you could say, well, is this actually working towards goals of social justice? So I think that's why resistance seemed useful and, and particularly through Nancy Fraser, who has at heart a fairly straightforward um, assessment of, of what social justice looks like, which is that there's, you know, um, essentially, you know, the kind of represent representational side and then there's the kind of distributional side of, you know, where are the resources actually going? Um, and I didn't want to adhere too closely to that because you, you do end up with problems about kind of, I don't know, it, 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 is, it is ultimately quite simple, I suppose. And, and you, you kind of tie yourself in knots about, well, you know, is, you know, this is representation, but is it the right kind? And this is re redistribution, but, you know, what, how do we ultimately want things distributed? So I didn't want to go too far down that road, but I did just want to have something that enabled, I guess, some kind of you know, some kind of scholarly distance from DIY that meant I could critique on terms that weren't just its own terms, um, but which would still allow me to kind of say, you know, to, to make kind of positive and negative assessments about what DIY was doing, which other kind of more relativistic frameworks just just wouldn't really leave scope for. No, absolutely. And I think the... Um... I suppose that example itself, the the kind of it illustrates your capacity for for distance, but also the importance of your relative proximity to the scene as well. About like understanding the inner workings and maybe the fact that some of your frustrations energize the project a bit. I think, and you know, um, I think that that example of the promoter is also really interesting in the sense that it also reifies the idea of the artists as being the primary kind of like locus of creativity and of, of music, right? Which seems at odds with the kind of social understanding of, of music production, which seems quite DIY-ish 
otherwise. I don't know. So, yeah. yeah. And then um, in chapter three, you kind of lay out more um, substantively the kinds of empowerment that DIY music practice um, as a form of kind of communication and self-realization offered to your participants. Uh, could you explain some of the details of what DIY offered your the people you interviewed um, in a kind of positive si- uh, sense? Um, yeah, I think I think it it, it really did for, for for those people who um, I guess for those people who who really had the journey that you know DIY music likes to present as the ideal. Um, it, it really was quite rewarding, rewarding. You know, there were people I spoke to who, you know, you know, maybe I guess particularly it would, it would be more common with, with, with women um, that, you know, they grow up as, as a music fan, um, you know, really obsessed with music, obsessed with, you know, um, the kind of p- political potential of music as well, um, but never felt like there was a place for them in, I don't know, for example, kind of more like mainstream indie scenes where, you know, it is generally four men in a band on stage um, and who would kind of at some point to sort of discover the existence of this DIY scene, which seemed to be operating on slightly different principles and who would sort of, and, and would sort of realize actually, you know, I, I could give this a go. Um, uh, and I think that that kind of, I don't know if empowerment is the right word for it. That's kind of a, yeah, it's a kind of complex term, but that feeling of self-realization, I suppose, of that was specifically enabled by the sort of participatory ethic of, of DIY. Um, I think for those people, DIY sort of lived up to the, the promise, basically. But, um, f- you know, for every one of those people, there may be countless others who... I don't know, first went to a DIY venue and found it to be incredibly cliquey and incredibly kind of insular um, and who, who maybe didn't feel like, like, like that kind of um, self-realization was, was on offer. Um, yeah, and I suppose I was interested in, in how that relates to social media in terms of those, those powerful experiences of DIY were never really related to social media. They were they were always really related to live performance um, or to you know the first time maybe promoting a concert, which is obviously I don't know whether you've promoted gigs, but they are just absolutely kind of anxiety inducing. Yeah, you, know, you spend the whole day just you know certain that no one's going to come, and then when people start to come through the door, you realise that you know oh, this is this is actually hap- I've made this happen, or you know that the community is supporting this in a way that I don't know. Yeah. So, so things like that were always the powerful experiences. And, and then the social, social media experiences were, you know, for all that, all that social media is communication and is kind of, you know, ought to be potentially empowering in terms of like, you're sharing things that you've made actually just the way that the, the kind of the feedback comes on social media. I don't know. It was never reported as a kind of, you know, a meaningful experience when you posted your song and it got, 25 likes or whatever because i know it's just hard it's maybe quite hard to make that mean something i had to kind of translate that into you know what that means ethically or politically it, it just it's just you know it's a number and maybe it could be more maybe it could be less but you know you, you don't really know what you're what you're gauging it against um 
so yeah, I think that was something that I was kind of keen to try and get across is, is this idea that actually the, the most powerful kind of effective experiences, if you like, um, were kind of the times when social media was was furthest from people's minds. You use this term in this chapter called, which I'm going to mispronounce, but epistolary intimacy. Is it epistolary? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, so could you expand on, on this term? What, what does it mean and what kind of work are you putting it to in this context? Um, yeah, it's probably unnecessarily fancy as a term. I just, I like to, I mean, epistolary, as I understand it, just means, you know, relating to letter writing, right? So there's a kind of genre of novel, which is kind of epistolary, um, which just, you know, when a novel is just kind of presented as letters to other people. Um, Frankenstein, I guess, is is a famous example. Um, but I think what I was interested in is, is the idea that DIY aesthetics often permit that kind of feeling of a close but mediated communication with with other people, right? So letters is this, you know, they're, they're mediated, but they're still very intimate. They're still kind of personal. And I think as, coming especially from Riot Girl, there's this idea that actually if, if the media is kind of sufficiently um, earnest and kind of sufficiently confessional, perhaps, um, you know, listeners or, you know, readers of zines or whatever can start to feel like they are the target of this communication. And you can kind of almost pretend that it's not a mass communication, right? You can pretend that your music is not for thousands and thousands or, you know, however many people, but it's actually like this, you know, bearing of quite intimate feelings um, between, um, yeah, between a kind of, creator and you know recipient of that message or whatever um and that always seemed to be quite an important aesthetic of a lot of diy as i said kind of starting with riot girl um i was kind of interested in the way that that has been shaped a little bit by social media just because you know a, a premise of social media is that kind of anyone could be could be watching or could be reading at any given point. And there's, there's a lot of academic literature on social media and like imagined audiences, you know, the way that they collapse different kinds of audiences so that on social media, you might be writing for your friends, but you might also have to be writing for your parents or um, for your workmates or, you know, you know, basically the, the, these kind of distinctions collapse and that you don't have the space to communicate in that more kind of targeted way. Um, yeah, and, and I think there was some evidence of that, that, that people kind of, social media didn't seem to be providing that kind of room for, I guess, kind of public, but yet still kind of intimate communication. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the, the thing was that, you know, some people, some people seem to be, be able to, to, to deal with social media really well. And I think like a lot of kind of communication, it depends a little bit on your, your personality and your kind of inclination to, to be funny and to be kind of relatable. Um, I think that was, that was part of the thing is that, you know, DIY music is at least ideally supposed to be a place where kind of non, you know, non ideal subjectivities, if you like, can ha have a space for ex expression. Right. So, I don't know, it's, just, it's a space for, you know, weird people broadly to like express themselves creatively and to be kind of recognized and to be seen on some level. But it did seem like social media kind of reduced the kind of 
capacity of some people to have successful communications and lots of people in interviews would say like uh you know i'm just rubbish at social media i'm just not i don't have i'm not funny i don't have the right kind of tone to be kind of recognized on social media um so it whereas diy seems to be a place where you can be you can have kind of successful communication um in, in, in you know if you're kind of you know if you if you don't feel like you live up to whatever ideals where social media did not seem to be, you know, comparatively didn't seem to be offering that kind of that space for expression. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed how this chapter through using the DIY music example, it provided such clarity in thinking about what's, what's wrong with the problems of the kind of compulsion towards relatability and the kind of very, very complicated, but unwritten rules that, dictate successful communication on social media. I, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed that. I found it um, very helpful, actually. Um, and so then in, in chapter four, you move on to talk a bit about the presence of kind of hierarchies and the and aspects of competition within DIY scenes. But you, you kind of, it's, you make quite a complicated argument here to suggest that competition in itself doesn't necessarily need to be a bad thing or run counter to the ethical principles of DIY or the drive for social justice. So could you explain how you kind of square this circle? Um, yeah, I can try. Um, I think the, the understanding of competition is partly influenced by um, David Harvey, not, not David Harvey, the geographer, but the kind of management scholar, um, who I think is actually at, at just 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 at Leeds now, um, but yeah, and, and this idea that um, you know competition can have a different function if it's in a space where everyone agrees that there are kind of shared goals. You know, I suppose the goals don't have to be shared completely, but um, this idea that there might be an, an overlap in what people are trying to achieve, um, and, and David Harvey talks about academia as a space where there's potential for this to happen. Um, you know, that lots of academics might be involved in the same political project. And if you really are involved and committed to that, then, you know, the idea that other people are doing excellent work, which you might feel, you know, a little bit envious of or whatever is a kind of motivating thing, or, you know, you know, maybe not, maybe not even jealousy, but kind of, you know, if people are doing inspiring work that, that makes you want to kind of improve and kind of develop what you do, um, but in the academic context, he's arguing that, you know, the the competitiveness of the job market, or I guess in particular, the kind of the extent and the kind of, yeah, the kind of prevalence of kind of rankings and kind of, um, you know, frameworks for basically put, putting people in competition and kind of rewarding people with, with funding and things like that, make it a lot more difficult to kind of sustain that feeling of, I think conviviality is the word that he uses. Um, and I think there's probably a parallel in, in DOI music that, um, you know, competition is fine if, if it really feels like the end goal is, is kind of shared. And so I was interested in kind of how social media might, might impact that. I suppose one of the things that I, that I kept coming back to in my thinking is, is the way that social media kind of creates specific entities and kind of objectifies certain kinds of practice in particular ways. And I don't know, I, I suppose I was starting to feel like this might be a, a bit of a reach, but really the idea that social media doesn't reward things collectively, it really only rewards at the level of 
individuals or even if it's groups, they are still kind of treated as individual entities on on a network, essentially, right? Um, so there is no there is no place where the DIY scene is, you know, rewarded for its efforts. If you know what I mean, it, it can only translate as follows or as likes for specific specific bands, and obviously those numbers are always kind of front and center on, on social media and also on streaming platforms as well. So it does create a sense of, you know, that, that actually the, the, the competition is, is kind of manifest in, in kind of ways that are kind of quite, it's quite easy to see where, um, how, how well or how badly people are doing, I suppose, on those terms. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the broader point really was to make that distinction between seeing things as a network and conceptualizing them as some other kind of, you know, collaborative thing. And, you know, the scene is the term that gets used most often in kind of popular music studies, which suggests that there is kind of something that is more than the sum of its parts. You know, that the idea of these things coming together actually creates something which is not reducible down to just the, the different nodes in, in the network. And social media just doesn't, doesn't work that way, doesn't think that way, um, and really does sort of diminish and sort of divide the scene back down into its kind of constituent parts and say, well, okay, this part of it has a thousand likes or whatever. And, you know, even, you know, like even things like, you know, if there are posts of photographs of, of DIY shows and stuff, they always have to come from someone who is kind of getting the, the kudos for those, those photos or whatever, like every aspect of it is really clearly delineated and really clearly, um, owned, um, in a way that, you know, is, is not an inherent feature of the technology because it's, I think it's pretty possible to imagine kind of communal online spaces where sort of ownership and kind of, you know, um, reward is, is a bit more distributed. Um, but it is, you know, a pretty core feature of social media as platforms that, you know, need identifiable units to be more or less to be marketed to, right? It needs to be able to break down individual actions to say, okay, well, this person's interested in these things and, you know, therefore we can target them with, with you know, with these specific things that they have, you know, that we know that they like. Um, and so it doesn't really, it doesn't make kind of economic sense for them to have a kind of model where things are, are, are blurred and things are kind of, ambiguous um so yeah sorry rambling a bit but but i think that's it's it's not just the competition it's it's how the competition is actually kind of laid out and presented back to us i suppose yeah i, I suppose the the as you say as, as the idea of a scene being more than the sum of its parts is ultimately referring to a quality of kind of being ineffable right and being ineffable is kind of fundamentally at odds with the whole architecture and financial model of social media where transparency is, you know, from the uh, and rendering into data is supposed to be the kind of name of the game i guess um uh, yeah no, absolutely um and, and so one thing which you've already touched on slightly but it'd be good to kind of draw out a bit more is is you talk throughout about um 
impulses towards openness on one hand and insularity on the other as something that kind of animates um, DIY music scene. It's kind of an unresolvable tension, but that is quite generative, I guess. Could you, could you talk through some of these tensions and some of the benefits and pitfalls of seeking either to remain insular or looking to expand and be open as a music scene? Yeah, I think there were a few tensions that I identified in which, in the PhD at least, were kind of the structure, you know, the structure of the chapters around each of these tensions, and then for the book ended up with a slightly different structure. Um, but I think, I'd say, well, maybe one of the kind of key kind of contributions really to, to the kind of study of independent music, I think, is is that I was kind of keen to present DIY as kind of closer to popular music than it than it really sort of thinks it is, or at least you know, it's it's a kind of music that deals in, you know, commodities and, and ultimately has a kind of faith in in mass communication. So com- compared to something like, you know, communi- community choir singing, which is a kind of example I always think back to, you know, th- there is no kind of, um, I don't know, DIY has a, a kind of particular belief in kind of the ability of, of recorded music, for example, to kind of, um, succeed in kind of conveying politics um, and you know it, it kind of it emulates popular music in lots of ways in terms of yeah the way it thinks about artists the way it thinks about kind of um, I don't know bands as units you know tours merchandise lots of it is a kind of microcosm of, of what popular music does so it is it is about kind of the ability of music to travel across distances um, and yeah it, it, that that can't really happen without without music being a kind of a, a commodity um, and so I think so, some specific tensions kind of come from that yeah one of which as you said is this idea of you know insularity and openness which is I suppose the is is related to that question of whether DIY is supposed to be um, you know, kind of understandable for everyone and, and, and able to kind of um, succeed in uh, sort of convincing or winning over, you know, a large proportion of people or whether it's really supposed to be music made by quite a small set of people for kind of other people within that group, you know, maybe a kind of essentially a kind of vanguardist kind of way of thinking about it. Um, and so there, there is always this tension between, you know, how, how big a DIY band supposed to get, you know, because on the one hand, surely if, you know, if aesthetically they have something important to say, then they should want to be as, as big as possible. But at the same time, if they're doing that, then they're starting to um, fall into relations of, you know, essentially a kind of stardom where certain bands become kind of embodiments of the whole scene, arguably, you know, to the detriment of, other musicians, because as as I said, the idea is always supposed to be that that anyone can do it, and it, you know it's not that any musicians have particular kind of specialness to them. Um, so yeah, that that is a kind of important tension, and I think I'd describe it as a kind of constit- constitutive tension. It is a tension that kind of makes up what DIY is, um, and it it's one that just kind of I suppose sort of translates onto onto social media in some quite specific ways, which is. Um, you know, are bands supposed to be, 
you know, working within kind of small private groups or are they supposed to be getting as much attention for their music as possible? Um, I guess the political dimension of, of insularity and openness is that, you know, is, is DOI supposed to be changing people's minds? You know, is it supposed to be going out and, and going to the most, you know, difficult audiences, you know, to, I don't know, to, to racist or sexist audiences and, and going there and doing that work of, you know, political outreach almost, um, or is it supposed to be something that is, um, offers a degree of protection for people who wouldn't have protection elsewhere. You know, as I said, kind of people who might be unusual characters or who might be marginalized in whatever way, um, is DIY supposed to be ultimately a space for them and therefore something that shouldn't really be looking outward, but should just be kind of making this insular space as, as kind of, as kind of accessible and uh, ideal as possible. Um, and that, that kind of, yeah, I, I, my feeling, I guess, was that um, the DIY scene that I was studying was prioritizing kind of insularity in the way that it, it kind of ultimately wanted safety, which is you know valuable, and I, I don't think I have any particularly strong feelings about that. But it did seem like people were quite content to play the same venues every time, to play you know, on the same bills and to, to have ultimately quite similar experiences um, rather than seeking, I don't know, ris riskier, <laughs> riskier experiences. And that, as I said, it's not really for me to, to judge that, I suppose. Um, but yeah, online, I suppose that manifested in quite, um, uh, I don't know, people would be quite, closed off and that, that you know it, it meant that it was you know in practical ways quite difficult for people to even know that gigs were going on if they weren't part of that scene it maybe wasn't particularly welcoming um you know if you weren't in touch with you know maybe five or ten kind of key people in that scene um or if you know in case of one interviewee if you've been maybe blocked by a couple of those people on social media you wouldn't really have any clue what was going on so that insularity does definitely lead to a kind of limited a limiting of the social impact maybe in some way of, of diy but as i said i think I, I still personally feel pretty um on the fence about it in terms of, you know i can definitely see the, the advantages to having that kind of insularity and that kind of that sense of a safe place from which to do things that might be a bit more kind of performatively risky an interesting uh, kind of wrinkle that comes out of that, I suppose, is the idea that um, social media, which is, you know, kind of it tends, tends to be caricatured as kind of an opening up, a rendering things visible and public and, and does have those dynamics. But the, the movement of the promotion of DIY shows almost exclusively online, thus removing largely the like material element of, you know, fly posting or leafleting or whatever makes it far more inaccessible for, and, and far more closed off to new arrivals and the as you say reducing the the possibilities of kind of encounter um which i find really interesting it, it just actually made me think of my experiences going to new cities and wanting to find some live music that i'd like over a weekend and it being for anything that might be remotely underground or diy it being very very difficult now even compared to a few years ago when it might be easy, you might be more likely to see a poster or something. Um, and that just seems, seems like a really interesting dynamic, I think. Yeah. And it, yeah, that's the thing. It, it, it's surprising because you would think that the information would be so accessible, but I think it's, 
a consequence of, I suppose it's decentralization, right? The idea that social media doesn't take any kind of overarching responsibility for making sure that, you know, there's like a clear comprehensive gig guide for any, any given city or whatever. It is just, it's, yeah, it's a free space for people to do that, but there's no way of knowing which specific people you should be following who are, who are doing that for you. Um, yeah. And it's also a problem for kind of archiving as well, which is, I guess, you know, to some extent, a, a DIY kind of ethic, this idea that actually what you're doing is, is documenting, you know, you're documenting your life you're, you're in, in your music, you're kind of keeping a, a record of things in a way that, you know, maybe there's a politics to doing that when, you know, the recording industry is a kind of record of social life, but it's a, it's a skewed record, at least in the, in the DIY take it's, you know, it's, it's only prioritizing certain kind of voices. It has kind of interest in, you know, certain themes and certain, certain ideas and DIY is maybe a repository for recording other, other values. Um, and if it's hard to, you know, there's, you know, if it's hard to sort of archive posters, if it's hard to have an archive of recording, you know, you know, anything that was on MySpace, you know, 15 years ago is, is lost probably. Um, I'm sure similar things will happen whenever, you know, Bandcamp disappears, right. You know, this idea of, that was definitely part of, you know, the physical media side of, of DIY in the seventies and eighties is, you know, making records was really difficult, but it was seen as something that was part of the politics was kind of putting this down and making sure that there was a record that people felt this way at a particular time. And I think that will be something that we probably look back on in 10 or 20 years and think, oh, we really thought this was just going to be available forever, but it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely gone. Yeah, no, totally. Um, you touched on it a little bit earlier in terms of the the kind of capacity for negative comparisons that come through having kind of numbers attached to your social media presence and stuff. Um, but in, in chapter six, you look specifically at metrics and kind of measurement. And um, I'd be interested to hear you talk a bit about some of the objections you identify DIY music having had, at least historically, to processes and logics of quantification and how the kind of platform subsumption of music in general has maybe um, shifted this slightly. Yeah, I think, you know, I suppose um, some of these, the historical critiques are, are never kind of kind of articulated uh, as perfectly as you'd want them to be because they're, I suppose, they're sort of general sentiments. But I think broadly the idea is that, you know, for example, the, the chart, you know, the, the billboard chart or, you know, the UK charts as a kind of measure of the success of music, it would be inadequate because it doesn't, it doesn't measure, I suppose, qualitative connection to that music. It doesn't measure impact on people's lives. It, it, in a sense, it just measures kind of what well, at the most, by the most skeptical perspective, it really just measures the success of, of a publicity campaign or whatever, right? It just it measures kind of economic success. Um, and so DIY was really all always about, I suppose, depth of connection rather than quantity. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose whether consciously or not, there was always kind of an absence of an ability to measure you know, your success against other people's, um, you know, th there was no kind of DIY chart really because there was no call for one. Um, and, uh, you know, there still isn't really a call for one today, but we are, 
you know, we can't really help being presented with with numbers that that do the work of comparing us um, to to our peers, but also to musicians in kind of you know all over the world doing things that are just qualitatively quite different. Um, so I suppose I, I was interested in both aspects of that, the kind of the, the more the competition kind of internal to the scene and, and a way that, you know, if you set up a Facebook page, right, you know, a Facebook page rather than a Facebook profile is this kind of quite specifically business orientated thing, which is really designed to be run by companies, but they are definitely the best things for bands to use on Facebook, right? Um, but when you set one up, you know, and you, and you kind of identify that you're, you know, doing music or whatever, it will come up with suggested pages for you to compare yourself against. And those will often be bands that you, that you know, and that you like, and it will just be like, well, you know, it will be trying to come up with strategies for you to get more followers than them. Um, so there's that and the kind of way that that changes things. But I think I was also interested in how it changes DIY's relationship to popular music. Um, I suppose, especially in light of a kind of a, a broader acceptance of, of popular music and the kind of political value of, of popular music. I think at least in the time I was writing, there was, you know, um, you know, everyone in the DIY scene would, would be listening to like Taylor Swift or Beyonce or whatever. And there wouldn't really be any political kind of no, no kind of perceived problem with that really. Um, so I guess I was interested in how that in combination with kind of social media and, and streaming metrics made it much easier to kind of diminish uh, DIY and the kind of political potential of it, um, just in terms of, you know, seeing, you know, absurd numbers um, of views on, on YouTube for, I don't know, like, you know, I think Drake was, was one comparison that came up a lot of the time just because of his kind of ubiquity then. Um, and, and just trying to think like, well, if, if my kind of, you know, if we measure kind of impact numerically, then how do you even begin comparing 50 views to, to hundred million or, or however many, um, and just the way in which that was in the interviews, that was quite clearly kind of deflating people a little bit, um, you know, because it just, I don't know, the critique just wasn't there to be able to construct. DIY is this thing that was qualitatively different, you know, in the absence of that critique, the numbers just came to feel quite, um, overpowering and kind of, you know, it's ultimately the most relevant measure of comparison between, between DIY and kind of mainstream popular music. Um, and I do think that that worked to kind of, um, yeah, ultimately kind of underplay or kind of undercut, I suppose, to undercut the the kind of yeah, the, the capacity of DIY to do to do things differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose if if um A, if everything is DIY now, as there's like a kind of implication through social media and B, if you placing your band next to Drake on Facebook, you know, that they ultimately look commensurable, then it's very hard to resist the urge to be like, Oh, well, what's the point? You know? I, yeah. I think that that came through really strongly. Um, and, and you use this term in this chapter called the, the DIY imaginary. And I'd just be interested to hear you unpack that a little bit. Cause I, I really liked it. Yeah. I think it's, 
what I've been talking about really is that capacity to see DIY as um, as meaningful and as kind of meaningful beyond you know just the number of people in the room or the number of people listening to the music and I think it goes back again to that idea of you know DIY is is so close to popular music and it does sort of think in terms of popular music I suppose and that I don't know I'm not sure I don't, I don't know how accurate this is but it, it struck me that a lot of the time DIY is kind of about convincing yourself that I don't know con- convincing yourself that you're I don't know a star I suppose maybe that's not the right word but you know this this ability for the gig to feel like a really successful communication is kind of yeah I think it is undercut by a kind of imposition of quantitative reality I don't know it's it's not a term that I would feel too attached to but I, th- I think yeah just the idea that it part of the DIY work of kind of constructing worlds might be a little bit in the imagination and a little bit about just allowing ourselves space to to pretend which I, I does I do think kind of links to you know you know more transgressive performances and things like that you know one of the things that struck me looking at the lead scene at that time was kind of the extent of embarrassment around performance and 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 even just things like in in the architecture of space like gig spaces that you know there's no there's no green room or anything there's no place where artists go to kind of prepare themselves for, for performances so you'd have you know bands just talking to their mates and then being like oh i'm going on stage now and i don't know it always felt like consequently there was no i don't know all the performances were also quite embarrassed and everyone felt kind of embarrassed to be there and like embarrassed for taking up their friends time and oh i'm glad you came you know we haven't really practiced and we're a bit we're a bit rubbish and and it just always felt like people there was a lot more scope for people to be kind of positive and kind of you know committing a bit more to this idea of performance and it, it always seemed a bit tied into that to me that you know people weren't really able to imagine themselves as more than they were and it, everything was kind of a bit low stakes yeah, I think it's also interesting in comparison to the the scenes that you cite um, as historical examples, you know, I mean, because one thing that's not lacking from some of the Riot Girl stuff and also from the post-punk, you know, is uh, an absence of stridency, right? And, and confidence to some degree, right? Like, uh, as, as you say, like, the UK post-punk writing all these manifestos and stuff like that, you know, a manifesto is a, a pretty self-confident genre of, <laughs> of writing, maybe to some degree. And I think that absence... Well, I mean, it, it seems quite apparent in the scene that I'm researching and in all sorts of kind of um, localised popular music nowadays, I think. I think that's a really interesting um, way of framing it. And, and then in the in Chapter 7, the penultimate one, you, you move on to talk to kind of frame all of this in the context of optimization, of which there's kind of a growing literature now. Um and at the start, you you introduce kind of labor process theory and you look at DOI emerging as a kind of critique of a specific mode of an organization of production um, in kind of late 20th century, you know, Fordism and Taylorist logics of management. So I wonder if you might talk a bit about how those two things relate and how platformization maybe renders the critique of Fordist production that's in DOI music maybe a bit outdated. 
Um, yeah, yeah, I can try. Um, <laughs> it's definitely the, the kind of, so the structure of the book, I suppose, kind of aims to expand the kind of areas of investigation gradually. So it look, starts off looking at kind of individuals and then at the scene and then uh, sort of broader relationships with popular music. And then the last chapter is more about, yeah, it's kind of relationship with platform economies and platform logics. And I think, yeah, that, that was the David process theory was, was the most kind of helpful stuff for me in thinking about how the, I guess the, the, the limitations of, of DIY's emphasis on, on autonomy and kind of control, because yeah, if you look at kind of post-punk in late seventies, their kind of conception of the record industry was one of essentially a kind of assembly line, right? The kind of Fordist method of production where, you know, workers do kind of small, relatively menial tasks. Um, and they don't really have a knowledge of the overall production, which is something that, you know, Harry Braverman, the, the, the kind of labor process theorist, says is a kind of historical development where, you know, previously you would have had workers with kind of valuable craft skills, knowing quite a lot about how the product was made. And then into the 20th century, that kind of knowledge is taken from them consciously and deliberately by management and by employers. And so the kind of, you know, I think the post-punk view of the record industry is that the musicians on major labels are like a cog in the machine. They make the music because they're able to do that, but they don't really have any control over its kind of economic life or its kind of political purpose or the fact that it's all just kind of becoming part of a you know homogenous kind of mass culture, I suppose. And the, the, the distinction that Harry Bradman makes is between planning and doing, right? So the, the workers are doing, but the management are actually doing all the planning. And I think DIY in, in the 70s and in the 80s is an attempt to take control of the, the planning, right? The overall kind of purpose and, and life of that product rather than just the kind of the specific skills of, of music making. Um, yeah, which, which struck me as a kind of contrast to the way that platforms interact with DIY music today, which is that in a way they, they offer all musicians, not, not just, you know, named DIY musicians, a huge amount of control over the planning of their kind of musical careers or, you know, their musical projects. Um, and what the platforms take charge of in lots of ways is the kind of doing is the complex, but ultimately quite menial tasks that make it possible. So things like, um, if you upload your music to it, like a distribution service, like, um, DistroKid or something, the way that they will just sort out getting it to all of those platforms is something that in the 70s version of DIY would have been really, really difficult, uh, really, really hard. Um, but that that doing is is made very easy and it's that kind of activity that's actually controlled by the platforms. And it's the, the planning that, you know, pl the, the platforms don't particularly care what you do with the tools. They say, well, it's up to you to have the kind of entrepreneurial motivation to to go off and, and figure out how you, to, to make the plan for how you will actually use all those different platforms in in, in music or in whatever other sphere cultural or, or otherwise so it seemed to me that that was a kind of inversion of, of what had previously been happening and that accordingly you know that idea of diy involving control and uh, kind of autonomy over the the big plan um, might be a little bit insufficient in, in, in a kind of age where, you know, all musicians have 
that kind of autonomy. But actually what's what's lost is the kind of specific skills required to to kind of distribute and to kind of make music available. Um, and it's those things which are actually maybe the, the locus of, of power at this point is control over distribution. And you you kind of discuss processes where of optimization in the DIY scene where the yeah the control that platform exert over distribution uh, might be influencing the kinds of products that get produced or uh, or, or cultural objects I guess uh, so what, what did optimization look like for your participants and could you maybe explain some of your concerns about the potential effects of optimization yeah it's a term that's been used by other scholars as well I think Jeremy Morris and, and, and others um, and I suppose it's this idea that um, on social media, communicating on social media kind of requires us to think about kind of um, things that are bordering on marketing, but which might not quite be considered marketing, but which nonetheless kind of instill a kind of promotional culture or however you want to, however you want to describe it. The idea that, you know, we could always be getting slightly more attention for the thing that we're doing. Um, I guess, yeah, I was just struck in interviews by the extent to which people were thinking about, um, you know, fairly things that seem kind of fairly normal and fairly innocuous, like, you know, what time of day to post, um, you know, or, or how many times a day to post and whether, you know, maybe doing something in the morning and afternoon and evening would be ideal to catch people with, different routines or you know different time zones and things like that or you know making sure that um you know new releases always came with kind of photo content or video content um because that's what the algorithm seemed to want and those things change all the time and they're probably changing every few months you know or that you know there was that brief period where because um I don't know, Facebook seemed to particularly like posts that were about congratulations and good news. So they would ask all their followers to kind of post congratulations in the comments so that it might seem like the right kind of content for, for Facebook to kind of bump up to the top of people's feeds. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the kind of the kind of political aspect or any kind of political problem with that is quite hard to articulate. But I suppose it is just that that sense that people are making decisions with a, with a kind of pr promotional perspective in mind and that it, it kind of normalizes this idea that you could always be doing a little bit more to get attention. And I think the other thing was that, which probably seemed more, more important to me actually was that optimization is always presented as, um, as fighting the algorithm or fighting the platform. And it's just, you know, ordinary users up against this monolith that they're trying to, you know, just get a little bit of joy from, just trying to get a little bit of, you know, um, I don't know, uh, kind of sympathy from in a way, you know, just like, please just let me at least get my music out to the hundred people that I want to hear about it. And I think that really understates and kind of hides um, the way that, these kind of optimization things are actually competition. They are actually, you know, creating norms, which then your peers in, you know, in bands like yours have to adhere to. Um, and yeah, they, they really are a kind of part of an acceleration of, of that kind of promotional thinking, um, which, yeah, which, which, which sort of look 
they sort of look as if you're doing something something resistant in terms of trying to beat the algorithm but but they are kind of yeah that you know whether, whether you think about it in that way or not they are kind of attempting to change your position within the hierarchy of, of other bands i suppose yeah that, that distinction i thought was really really useful for thinking through these things um and i think it's something that I, i'm certainly guilty of too you know you, you frame it to yourself well not only the fact that these things feel self-motivated but they also f- feel yeah to some degree resistant when actually you're conforming to the kind of logics that are being you know served up to you i suppose yeah no i, I thought that was really fascinating um so then given all of the all of the above um i suppose you don't you touch on this in your conclusion what are some of the ways that we can protect the kind of modes of being and producing and resisting that are distinctive to diy music scenes and practices yeah so the last chapter of the book is an, an attempt to kind of offer something a bit more productive rather than just critique i i think ultimately i i don't know i think that the thing that seemed obvious at the time and that still seems you know important is the need to kind of have different spaces online and to kind of build spaces which allow for more communal ownership um more kind of yeah kind of ability to um kind of share it in ways that are not quite so promotional and uh, yeah to, to, to maybe escape you know the, the broader shaping aspect you know things like copyright things like intellectual property trying to trying to think about ways that technology could be used to provide alternatives to these things um but you know saying that they should be done is a bit meaningless if there's not a will to do them um and i think particularly in that maybe in that kind of a scene that is broadly around guitar music i think there's a, a skepticism of technology um not so much as in i don't know folk or something but i think guitar music is often kind of on the fence between modernism and romanticism basically so a, a skepticism but also a lack of skills which you know at this point skills required to make something like that substantial um so it's something that you see a lot more in kind of around electronic music i think um i don't feel particularly optimistic about the kinds of things that are being built although i know lots of people are very optimistic about it and they do seem a lot more you know obviously at the moment whether in nfts or in you know whatever is coming next it seems like a lot of those things that read as communal are essentially investment vehicles right and they're, they're kind of you know getting on board with something means taking a, a financial stake in something so I, I don't feel that positive about that kind of stuff but I do think I do think it's necessary to have something that allows for the kind of for products to be I say products you know for for, for music and kind of music related um, <laughs> content whatever the whatever the non horrible word for content is to be kind of you know because they are you know the music and and everything around it at the moment is really shaped by by platforms right it's kind of platformization of cultural production and. You know, historically, DIY has has attempted to build modes of distribution that enable it to, you know, produce things that are not shaped in 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 that exact way. So, independent distribution networks and making zines and things like that, which have traits of kind of media commodities, but are also kind of substantially different. So, it does seem like that is as as needed as ever, but you know, technologically, you know, arguably more more difficult than ever as well. But yeah, I don't know. I'm also kind of 
you know, aware of my position as someone who got a lot out of DIY, you know, tried to make contributions as well, but it's also in a way it's not my, it's not my scene or, you know, at this point in my life and career and things, it's not, I don't, especially feel like I should be kind of in charge of the political direction of it as much as um, yeah, I'm happy to sort of contribute ideas. So um, yeah, that's kind of a cop out, but I, <laughs> I ultimately don't think it's really up to me. Oh, but an elegantly worded cop out, so that's the main thing. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> um, I guess the other thing I wanted to ask is, um, I, I don't know if you know, but what's is there anything that's kind of changed in the lead scene since you were doing your research and in the world of doing DIY music since you wrote the book? Yeah. I mean, I guess there's been a couple of things. I mean, one is a kind of more interest in ownership of venues and trying to make that possible because, you know, the the development of kind of city centers has obviously been hard on, on music venues, but it's also just, you know, paying rent to landlords and being in very precarious situations has proved to be a really, a real kind of limitation on the development of kind of local scenes. So I think that's one thing. I think um, you know, accessibility as well as kind of being taken a bit more seriously. Um, and then that, I think that accessibility stuff does relate to, to the internet as well, because obviously COVID was a chance for, you know, live streaming to, to kind of really, take off, but I think there are some concerns around, you know, as much as that might be an accessible option, it's also kind of insufficient as an answer to the problem of, of making venues accessible. So, um, yeah, things like that in terms of social media that, I mean, I was really aware when writing the book that the platforms being used would not necessarily be the platforms that were being used in a few years time and, you know, in writing a you know, one of the questions I had in, you know, is it worth writing a book about this is can I say things about social media that are not specific to the affordances of Facebook? Um, and, you know, today it, Facebook is not the most important platform for DIY. Um, in a way, we're sort of between things, but obviously the streaming platforms are much more important now. Um, Instagram, TikTok, maybe for the kind of younger bands, but you know, some of them are still pretty resistant to it, but definitely that move towards more visual content. Um, but I'm, yeah, hopefully there's, there's still some relevant stuff in terms of the, the pressures of relatability become, you know, they're slightly different, but I think if anything, they're kind of intensified by, yeah, the need to kind of find things to, to take photos of or to, you know, to look a certain way and things. So, um, yeah, I, I think I, I don't think there's been too much change and it is, I guess, broadly my feeling, but, um, yeah, now that things are kind of restarting again after COVID, it, it starts to feel like, yeah, business as usual, I suppose. I mean, one other thing I wanted to ask you about actually was that, um, you know, throughout the book, you, t- you talk about, um, forms of music making that are kind of similar, but in some ways distinct from DIY. So you say about community music choirs and, um, that sorts of participatory music that doesn't have the same ambivalent relationship with popular music but one thing that stood out to me was this idea of amateur music making and whether that might also kind of get gobbled up by platform logics when the kind of cult of the amateur is so so prominent in the kind of history of uh technology and the history of silicon valley and then also today the kind of 
amateurism can be kind of amenable to this a sort of Silicon Valley entrepreneurship as well of kind of like teaching yourself how to code, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And I don't know whether what that kind of means for uh, DIY and for those forms of non or only semi-commercial popular music making. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I think in a way DIY has always seen itself as sort of culturally superior to those kinds of activities in a way in terms of like something like a choir as being like maybe valuable but not not kind of well because it doesn't really transmit it doesn't really kind of broadcast what it's doing then it, it doesn't really have that capacity to kind of be influential and i suppose social media does open up that potential i think you find that when when things like that are kind of successful it's often very kind of gimmicky in some way or you know a little bit kind of has to be something slightly viral about the way that those kind of things in order to kind of break through so i think diy music has always been a bit skeptical of that which is one of the one of the things i find quite interesting about diy and social media is that it's it it's diy music is very kind of positive about the potential of communication but also kind of skeptical about you know being too successful at communication like the idea of something going viral is ultimately like okay that's not really what we're about um so yeah i think there's there are different logics there for sure um and yeah and i suppose with with choirs and stuff that there's a kind of i suppose there's always a pressure to kind of produce content but i don't know i do, I do see it as slightly less less troubling in a way just because that they have a slightly different relationship to yeah to, to commodification of culture and, and that i think of it as relatively safer from from some of those pressures but but i don't know and is there anything that uh listeners to this podcast should listen to in terms of music that you because you, you suggest tons of listenings throughout the book and there's a couple of playlists i think floating about which i can try and link to in the in the show notes but is there are there any key songs that anyone who wants to go away and listen to emblematic recordings should check out? <laughs> um no i don't think so i mean the purpose of the playlist in the book was to think about how yeah, songs can seem to give voice to to some of the ideas that we might think about as as academics, I suppose, in ways that seem quite tangential, but nonetheless kind of important. And so, lots of the music in the book is not DIY music, really. You know, it's um, yeah, it's really uh, I don't know, it's pretty bland, <laughs> pretty pretty normal music that just seemed to be speaking to to some themes for whatever reason. Um, I mean, I was just on tour last week with a band called American Poetry Club, who are this kind of US emo band, and they're they're all about twenty one, twenty two, and I'm, I know I was in a band supporting them, and I'm thirty four, and it was, I did feel, you know, just infinitely older than them, but it was really nice to feel to be with a band who are, you know, genuinely enthusiastic about what DIY music can do, and kind of have. Yeah, they have a kind of almost an entrepreneurial hustle about them, but it, you know, in the context of doing doing good things with it, I don't. I don't it, it seemed like yeah, a kind of reminder of what DIY can be, and you know, they were they were raising money for basically kind of um, abortion fundraising stuff in the US. Um, I don't know, and and also they they had kind of younger fans, and it was all just 
I don't know, there were people sort of 16, 17 there going to their first gig. And I was just yeah, really happy that, you know, young people going to their first gig might be seeing essentially a DIY gig and that there are, you know, as a reminder that there are kind of concrete differences to how those are organized and how you might come away feeling. Um, so yeah, there, there's a American Poetry Club is maybe a, a band recommendation for kind of people who I feel like are doing interesting things in, in DIY music at the moment. Nice. And uh, what are you working on now? Um, so my work kind of now stemming from some of this stuff is starting to look at kind of PR and music publicity, um, partly coming from some of the interviews with, with DIY musicians in this book who were, you know, feeling like in order to get the attention that they wanted, were having to engage with kind of, yeah, kind of independent music PR companies who, who charge you know, sometimes quite a lot of money um, to kind of get music featured on, you know, sometimes playlists, but also kind of online media and stuff. So, yeah, looking at those companies, which haven't really been studied in, in much detail. Um, so some of yeah, kind of continuation of the political projects in the research, I think, but moving away from DIY and looking at this thing, which is more part of the traditional music industries. Nice. That sounds super interesting. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and telling us all about your book. Um, see you again. Cool. Thanks, Carl.